Welcome to this week's episode of Christ Center Conversations, a Come Follow Me podcast where Celia and I discuss each week's Come Follow Me reading. As we've mentioned, we are not professional scriptorians nor religious scholars and have created this podcast to give a new perspective on how to approach the scriptures. We want to offer ideas, insights, and viewpoints that anyone and everyone can find as they study the scriptures with accessible tools and resources available to all. We just wanted to give you a heads up that this week it's just going to be me and Carter. With the content we were going over in the scriptures today, we felt it would be better just to have two of us so that you can follow and listen along easier as we dive into the scriptures this week, which will be 2 Nephi chapter 6 through 10. And we are so excited to dive into that today. So like Celia was saying, we're, we're really excited to be talking about 2 Nephi 6 through 10 today. These scriptures are fantastic and they really provide some of the key doctrinal points of the atonement that we see in the Book of Mormon. I wanted to share before we get started, an experience that Celia and I had this week that kind of relates to what we're going to be talking about today. So I, I currently am taking a music appreciation class, real basic entry-level music class. And one of the assignments was to go to a concert of classical music. And now anybody who knows me knows that I love sports. I love football. I love anything to do with sports. And so going to a classical music concert just did not really sound like something that I was very interested in doing. And I'll be honest about that. However, Celia and I went to BYU's concerto night earlier this week, and I was blown away by number one, the talent of so many people that surround us here at BYU, but also about how organized everything was. And that was something that really stood out to me. I loved the music from that night. I really did. I was really impressed by, like I said, the talent of the musicians, but something really stood out to me as we were watching um, the concert that night. The composer is sort of the leader of the orchestra. He guides them through the pieces and the movements. And it looks like he's, it really does look like he's doing exercises. It looks like he's, it looked like he was sweating. He was really engaged with everything. But what stood out to me was the organization and how the musicians and the instrumentalists followed the composer. And it was beautiful to see each one of the violin players moving in synchronization and the cellists who were moving at the same time. Everything was so organized and it created this beautiful sound that, like I said, I was not expecting to enjoy as much as I did. And it occurred to me as I was watching this concert that that's kind of how God orchestrates the universe, that he is the great composer of everything and that the elements and the intelligences and the universe obeys him just like the instrumentalists obeyed the composer. And when I thought about it like this, I was, it, it, it was like feeling the spirit in a different way. I really enjoyed watching the composer direct these musicians to create, like I said, this beautiful piece of music. And I think that, again, that's how God orchestrates the universe. And this week in Come Follow Me, we're talking about the atonement of Jesus Christ. The atonement of Jesus Christ is one of the most talked about topics of the gospel in this week's readings. And God had it planned from the beginning. Everything that he has done has revolved around the basis of the atonement, providing the gateway and the pathway for us to return to our Heavenly Father. So without further ado, let's get into the text today. We're going to be starting, obviously, in 2 Nephi 6, 
And I wanted to start by talking about the verse 2 Nephi 6.3. And here Jacob is essentially presenting what his purpose is. He talks about how he was anxious about the welfare of others' souls. He was really worried about the welfare of his people's souls and, and was often wanting them to come closer to Christ. And this was something that compelled him to service. And I also think it's really interesting, and I mentioned this a few weeks ago when we talked about Lehi's discourse to Jacob, is how Lehi was concerned about the exact same thing, the welfare and benefit of his child, Jacob. And in turn, Jacob, years later, is worried about the welfare and the benefit of his people, presumably his nieces, nephews, sons, daughters, cousins, etc. I just was blown away by this concept of really caring about people on such a deep level. I believe most people are good. I believe each one of us is born with the light of Christ, but we all have people in our life that seems like they really care about other people. And at the same time, they also seem like some of the happiest people. It doesn't make sense on the surface why worrying constantly about other people would provide happiness, but there's sort of this beautiful dichotomy here where the more we care about others and the less we think about ourselves, the happier we are and the better our life is. And again, for those who know me, everyone knows that I love science. I love tying in the scriptures with science because I'm a firm believer that science and religion are not enemies. Rather, they are best friends and you can't really have one without the other. I could go on and on about the science and religion debate. Today, I just wanted to highlight how this concept of compassion really does increase our happiness and there is science behind it. So I was reading recently an article entitled Acts of Kindness and Happiness from healthdirect.gov. And it talked about, there was a subtitle entitled Benefits of Kindness and, and Compassion. And I just want to read a little bit about it. It says, research is showing that people who are kind and compassionate are more content with their lives. They have better physical and mental health and feel less isolated, fostering stronger relationships. Small acts of kindness, such as a smile or hello, can have enormous power. The person being kind and the recipient can both benefit. You can be kind, generous, and compassionate to someone you know or to a stranger. Studies have shown benefits from kindness, compassion, and giving. The benefits can be greater sense of contentment or well-being, good mental health, less stress, better relationships and connection to common humanity. The happiness people get from giving to others can make a positive feedback loop. The more you give, the more positive you feel. This in turn fuels greater contentment or well-being. I loved reading this article because it's further evidence to me that really the gospel is the only way to true happiness and that not only is it spiritual, it's legitimately biological and physical at the same time. When we are compassionate and give ourselves to others and care about others, and it doesn't have to be on a grand scale like the article said, but when we truly care about other people, our biology changes so that we can become happier. And it's this lasting happiness that we kind of, I think, talked about last week a little bit. So the invitation to the listeners here is to be compassionate. It's something that we all have to work on. Even those that seem like they're compassionate all the time and that they were born compassionate have to work on it on a day-to-day -day basis. I'm a firm believer that many of Christ-like attributes are like muscles and we have to work on them. We can't just assume that they're going to passively 
become stronger in our life. We have to actively and intentionally work on becoming more compassionate. And we can pray for those things, just like Moroni teaches later in the Book of Mormon, that we can develop compassion, charity, Christ-like love for other people through prayer and through working on it, just like you would a muscle. I love this topic and idea of being compassionate and how it's a muscle that we just need to work and train and it becomes more natural to us. My life motto, some of you may know this if you are one of my friends who listens or my family, but it comes from the live action Cinderella movie. It's my favorite movie. She's my favorite Disney princess. Everyone knows this, (laughs) but it's the motto that says, have courage and be kind. It's actually kind of funny. My, I didn't pick this motto out for myself. My mom actually picked it out for me. And she said, Celia, this is something that you just exhibit and exude. It's not something that you had to work for necessarily. It's just something that kind of comes naturally. And I think on this point of compassion and Christ-like attributes is that we are going to have some that just come naturally to us. But there are others that we definitely need to work for and train for. It's like Carter said, that's something we want to challenge you guys to do this week is work for those attributes or that kindness or that compassion or that courage, right? Don't be afraid to step out of your comfort zone and really focus on it and pray for it this week because we can promise you as you focus on it and really pray for it and really desire for that change that it will happen. I really like that motto. And that's something that I noticed in Celia um, as we got to know each other and became friends and eventually started dating is she really does exude that principle of have courage and be kind. And I also think adding upon that, we can have the courage to be kind because sometimes in today's society, it's not cool to be nice, right? It's not cool to look like you care about other people. We live in a world so driven by self-image and improving upon our self-image. And and I'm a, I'm a believer and a proponent of having a high self-esteem, but I also think that when we place ourselves above other people, that's when we run into issues. So I could talk about compassion all day long, and it's something that I really want to work on. But in the essence of time, we want to move on to the next topic of this lesson, which is Isaiah. I believe in our first ever podcast, we kind of glossed over the Isaiah chapter from first Nephi, but it's going to be a lot harder to gloss over Isaiah as we get into second Nephi is a great portion of second Nephi is dedicated to Isaiah. And that spurns a question. And I think we've all asked ourselves this as we've read the book of Mormon is why is Isaiah quoted so much in the book of Mormon? And what about Isaiah is so important? Each and every one of us, as I said, who've read the book of Mormon have come across these Isaiah chapters and they're basically just copied over from the book of Isaiah that we find in the Old Testament with a few minor details changed. And I think it's really interesting, again, how often that Isaiah is quoted more than any other prophet from the Old Testament in the Book of Mormon. And Jesus himself in 3 Nephi commands us to read Isaiah. And so I think we need to look at it with a little bit of a more serious eye, where it's not just something that we can skip over because it's a little bit harder to understand. And by a little bit, I mean a lot harder to understand. It's something that we need to read. And there's a purpose behind why Isaiah is quoted so often in the Book of Mormon, and not just by Nephi, but by Jacob and Abinadi. And again, Jesus himself refers to Isaiah and says that he inspired Isaiah to say what he said. And I think that that's the key to why Isaiah is in the Book of Mormon. So this week, 
as I was preparing for these Isaiah chapters, right, the block of Second Nephi that has so much Isaiah in it, came across a fantastic article entitled Finding Doctrine and Meaning in the Isaiah Chapters in the Book of Mormon. And it's by Roseanne Benson and Sean D. Hopkin, both of whom are scholars for BYU. As we've mentioned many times throughout this podcast so far, one of the purposes of this podcast is to bring to light the resources that are available to all and not just religious scholars about how to approach reading the Book of Mormon, about how to gain a further and deeper understanding of the scriptures. And again, it's as simple as looking up a question that you have, such as why is Isaiah quoted in the Book of Mormon so often? That is the question that I typed into Google and it brought me to this article. I'll admit I didn't read the whole article because it is a little bit lengthy. However, I did want to share the conclusion of this article because it summarizes so well and I believe it answers the question of why Isaiah is quoted in the Book of Mormon. And we'll have a discussion about this going forward. So from the article, it says, Some students wonder why Nephi, Jacob, Abinadi, and finally Christ emphasized the words of Isaiah. Apparently, these prophets did so because the central messages of Isaiah support, enhance, and give depth to the central messages of the Book of Mormon. From Nephi's teachings to a Moroni's final message contained in Moroni 10 and on the title page, the authors of the Book of Mormon indicated that their purpose was to the convincing of the Jew and Gentile that Jesus is the Christ, and that the house of Israel might know the covenants of the Lord, which is on the Book of Mormon title page. Nephi was the first prophet to provide the promise repeated often by subsequent Book of Mormon prophets. Inasmuch as ye shall keep my commandments, ye shall prosper. But inasmuch as ye shall rebel, ye shall be cut off from the presence of the Lord. Later, Lehi made it clear that the promise to prosper meant that those who were obedient would prosper in the land. The promise of prospering the land is related to scattering and gathering. It mirrors the biblical understanding of covenants connected to the promised land found in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Thus, just as in Isaiah, Book of Mormon prophets saw Christ as the key that unlocked the power of the covenant. Israel's acceptance or rejection of Christ and his covenant determined whether they would be scattered or gathered or whether they would be connected to or separated from the Lord. Isaiah's use of the concepts of scattering and gathering undergird the doctrines of justice and mercy taught by Lehi, Jacob, Mosiah, Abinadi, Alma, Samuel, Mormon, Moroni, and Christ himself. The writings of Isaiah are not included in the Book of Mormon as a test for beginning readers as prophetic filler to increase book length or as a challenge for those at an advanced level of scriptural understanding. They exist in the Book of Mormon because they support its main message in beautiful and poetically profound ways. Indeed, it could be argued that the early authors of the Book of Mormon understood the themes of scattering and gathering, meaning the doctrines of justice and mercy, so well because they had first absorbed the central messages in the writings of Isaiah. This deep understanding of Isaiah allowed them to focus on the most important concepts and God's plan for his people and to teach them in plainness and simplicity. An understanding of the writings of Isaiah solidifies, deepens, and focuses students' testimonies of the Book of Mormon, allowing them to rejoice in Christ and in the blessings provided for those who make and keep covenants with him. So I know that that was a little lengthy. However, I think that those two paragraphs that I read from that article summarize so well why Isaiah is in the Book of Mormon. And something that really stood out to me is what 
they said is Isaiah is not added as sort of a test to see if you're understanding the Book of Mormon or if you're reading the scriptures with enough scriptural intelligence to be able to understand them. They're added because Isaiah was one of the first and most prominent prophets in the Old Testament and ever to talk so deeply and poetically and beautifully about Jesus Christ and his role in our lives and in the plan of salvation. I also like what he talked about how these two main ideas of scattering and gathering, both on a physical and global level, and also on a physical and more personal level, is summarized so well by Isaiah. We believe as Latter-day Saints in the scattering and gathering of Israel, but we also believe in the scattering and gathering of our souls at times in our life. Like we talked about last week, at different times in our life, we, we each have a different psalm of our heart, just like Nephi did. And at different times in our life, we each are scattered by the ways of the world and again gathered by the atonement of Jesus Christ. And that's something that we want to discuss going forward today. Thank you, Carter, for talking about Isaiah and scattering and gathering of Israel. I think a lot of us out there can be a little scared to try to tackle the writings of Isaiah and it can seem a little daunting, right? And I think it's a really good reminder about why we were so prompted to start this podcast is, right? It's it's hard for me and Carter too to even try to understand Isaiah, especially when it's not only in the Old Testament, but when it's in the Book of Mormon as well, right? It can be really hard. And this is just your reminder that you are doing so much better than you think. The Lord sees and loves your effort. So thank you, Carter, for your thoughts. I am actually going to move on into verse 7 of chapter 6. We're going to move ahead a chapter. Um, And this is actually a scripture that kind of stood out to me this week as I was reading these chapters. I've never really caught it before, but in verse 7 it says, And thou shalt know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed to wait for me. And I really thought about that last part, not be ashamed to wait for the Lord, and thinking about what that means and what that looks like. I don't have any website or article to pull up about this. This really is just coming off of my own thoughts and I'm very curious to hear about what you guys think it means to not be ashamed, to wait for the Lord. What does that look like? I know for me, when I think about this, I think of the everyday little things we do to be faithful in our lives. The everyday faithful Latter-day Saint. That's the person who reads their scriptures, right? Doesn't have to be morning and night because, you know, you can be busy getting up and getting the kids to school. So maybe it's a little bit later in the day. Or maybe it's in your car while you're waiting for your kids to get in after school. It's the Latter-day Saint who remembers to pray. You know, sometimes it doesn't always happen on our knees and at our bedside. Sometimes it's in the car on our way to work and it's a prayer in our heart. Sometimes it's in our car, right? We're just head down and we're parked. Obviously, we're parked. We are not driving. Let me clarify that, you know, we bow our head, close our eyes and fold our arms. It really is the little things that are we are not ashamed of. I grew up in California. So not not a Utah area where a lot of people around me were members. I remember feeling so different from everyone else in my high school with the standards that I had to not drink, not to do, not to smoke. I didn't want to go to a ton of parties. I had church every Sunday. I like all those things and standards that make Latter-day Saints so different. And it just was something that was so ingrained in me and just was something that I stood for and believed in so strongly. And that's what I think this verse is talking about. It's those who are not ashamed to stand in their faith. It's right. It's like the Monson quote, like dare to be a Mormon, dare to make it known, dare to have a purpose and dare to make it known. 
I think that's it. You guys can <laughs> fact check me if I'm wrong. But I really think that's what this verse is encompassing. It's those little everyday things that we do to continue to wait for the Lord and not be ashamed of what we're doing. But I want to turn it over to Carter as well and see what he was thinking about this concept of not being ashamed to wait for the Lord as well. So I love this concept of waiting upon the Lord and in this verse, not being ashamed to wait upon the Lord. And immediately I'm reminded about Lehi's vision where Lehi and his family and those who were partaking of the fruit of the tree of life looked to the great and spacious building and saw the finger of scorn pointed at them, wagging at them, and they heeded it not. I think in our day, and we'll discuss this further in the episode, but it's really, really easy to be ashamed. It could be easy to be ashamed to, like Celia was saying, be a member of his church and to be a member of the Lord's covenant people because we do things different than the world. We are a, a peculiar people. We do things different. We don't follow the ways of the world. And as Christ taught us, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. There's a talk by Robert D. Hales entitled, Waiting Upon the Lord, Thy Will Be Done. It came from the 2011 General Conference in the talk, and I, and I highly recommend this talk because it, it is such a powerful talk. But in the talk, it talks about how waiting upon the Lord means aligning our will with His. And that's a daily process. Every single day, we have to be aligning our will, what we plan on doing with the will of the Father. And we do that through prayer, like Celia was saying. We do that through the Spirit telling us what the Father would have us do. And if we follow that, we are blessed on a day-to-day basis. I'm a witness of that, and I've seen that so much in my life. Another thought about waiting upon the Lord is an actual literal waiting upon the Lord and looking to His second coming and preparing the world for such a great and terrible day. We want people to be on the great side of that day. I'm reminded of the painting that we see. It's it's a big mural in the Washington, D.C. temple, and we have the Savior standing in the middle of the painting and people on his right hand are rejoicing and happy and there's brightness and peace on his right hand and on the left we see people bent over in fear and people ashamed to look at the lord because of their own sins and i think that there's a a lesson in this painting that if we're ashamed of the lord in our day when he comes again or when we are in the presence of the savior We'll be ashamed to look at him because we're still ashamed of him, but not because we're ashamed of him, because we're ashamed that we didn't accept him in our life and that we'll be reminded of our own guilt, like it talks about in the Book of Mormon. So let this be an invitation again that we need to continue to wait upon the Lord patiently, to wait upon his second coming, but also wait upon him spiritually in each and every day. As we go throughout our life, we have to wait upon him to come into our life. And I think about, too, the word waiter. A waiter waits upon people. He serves them. He serves them what they ask for. And as we wait upon the Lord, I think we can look at it from that definition as well. Waiting upon the Lord is serving him, being his waiter, so to speak, doing what he asks, bringing him what he needs, being his hands in this world. And as each one of us have accepted Christ as our Savior and look to him, we are also instruments in this world of such 
turmoil and trials and tribulations. So I do really, really enjoy this topic of waiting upon the Lord. So we're going to move on now to signify chapter seven, which is an Isaiah chapter. This chapter is similar to chapter 50 in Isaiah. What's beautiful is Isaiah, the 50 chapters, Isaiah 51 and 52, and these are very messianic, meaning that these chapters talk about Jesus Christ. In the title, it says that Isaiah speaks messianically. And what that means, again, obviously, is that he is speaking about Jesus Christ. I wanted to read this verse, verse 4. I've read 2 Nephi 7 dozens of times, and I've never thought about this verse in any way. I didn't even acknowledge this verse in the past until I read it this week. So let me read it. 2 Nephi chapter 7, verse 4 says, The Lord God hath given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season unto thee, O house of Israel. When ye are weary, he waketh morning by morning. He waketh mine ear to hear as the learned. So I don't know why this verse spoke to me so much this week, but I do think it has to do with the fact that for the past two semesters, I've been getting up at 5 a.m. to go work as a custodian on BYU campus. And it has been a great, it's been a great experience so far, but it's also been extremely difficult to wake up at 5 a.m., especially when the rest of my day is super busy as a student and trying to get to med school and studying for the MCAT and working a few other jobs. Sometimes when my alarm goes off at 5 a.m., I am tempted to just quit my job on the spot, hit snooze and sleep in till seven or eight. And some days it really is me pulling and crawling out of bed, throwing on clothes in two seconds and, and driving to work. My physical body can get really tired by the end of the week. And by Friday, it's not even crawling at this point, but sliding out of bed and crawling into my closet to get my, to get my clothes on for the day. And this, this scripture really spoke to me this week because I do get weary during the week, but the Lord never gets weary of helping us. I think it's a beautiful image of having the Savior wake up when we are too weary to get out of bed. And I've had so many experiences in my life where I, I've seen this, not just in a physical sense of me being weary, but my spirit being weary and the Lord's spirit never gets weary. And I'm reminded of the scripture in Matthew that says, take my yoke upon you, all those that are weary, right? I love this image of, of the Savior waking up with us in the morning and being with us throughout the day. And I've really have seen that in my life as, as I've chosen a really hard career path that I get tired and I'm unable to do what I need to do. And the savior I feel is right next to me day by day. And I wanted to ask Celia if she's had any moments in her life when she's felt like the savior has not gotten weary and that she's relied upon his spirit that is full of energy at all times. Yeah, no, I think this is a great question. And it kind of brings me to this verse in chapter nine. Sorry, I'm going to skip ahead. We'll, we'll make sure to go back and hit chapter eight. But it's this verse in chapter nine that says, the righteous, the saints of the Holy One of Israel, they who have believed in the Holy One of Israel, they who have endured the crosses of the world and dis despised the shame of it, they shall inherit the kingdom of God, which was prepared for them from the foundation of the world, and their joy shall be full forever. It kind of goes with this, I, at least for me, it's the connection of the Lord is not wary, but he's also so very aware of the crosses that we bear. 
I think he understands that like, you know, this mortal journey, we have so much to deal with personally and everyone's cross that they bear is different. And that's why he's not wary in helping us. There's no, there's no end to his love or his support or his mercy. And it kind of, it's kind of a question for you to think about this week, or maybe you've thought about this week or like, what are the crosses like you've had to bear in your life? And now have you seen the Lord help you in that and continue to strengthen you and support you? And I can promise that as you guys reflect on that, it is such a testimony builder to be able to look back and see all the times when the Lord has strengthened you and build you up, even though you were at your lowest, he would never, he already went way like lower than we ever could hit. So he understands exactly how to help you. He never gets tired of helping you. And, and a story I have to kind of go with this is I'm going to I'm gonna try to be a brave girl and talk about this without crying. When I was on my mission, I nine months into my mission, I want to say. So I was about halfway. And I don't know what clicked. Actually, <laughs> I did get back. I kind of do. A missionary had told me, if you want to lose weight, stop eating. And I don't know why, but something in my brain just kind of clicked. And I said, okay. I'm not going to do it anymore. And so I, I stopped eating and I went, I, so by the time I came home on my mission, November of 21, I was probably about 95 pounds. And I remember I hopped in the car with my mom and she was like, I'm so glad to have you home. But I know that those, I can see the safety pins on the back of your dress, holding it up. Like I'm worried about you. And, and I knew coming home that I was struggling with an eating disorder. I knew it. And I knew I needed help. I recognized it. I understood that this was not mentally healthy, right? And not physically healthy either. And so I made sure to go to doctor's appointments. I started getting blood work done. I then even when I got to school, BYU has a CAPS program, which is right mental health and therapy. And I was able to get in and meet a really awesome therapist who let me stay on with her until I felt better, I guess. I don't know. And I was there for a year in therapy and I think that's probably it's it's one of the personal crosses I've had to bear in my life and it's that's what I think of when Carter asked me the question of how have I seen the Lord pick me up and strengthen me because there's not a day that went by where I didn't feel feel so guilty for what I was dealing with and struggling with right it's kind of easy to say like come on like you just need to eat something right and there's so much more behind the mentality of an eating disorder that stops you, right? And I just would sob in my prayers at night because I just felt so guilty that I'm not treating the gift that is my body the way I should. And I just felt awful. And especially, and I felt more awful that I was coming to the Lord every day with the same like problem, right? That I couldn't I couldn't figure out like how to get better. I couldn't figure out why I wasn't eating. But little by little and with every prayer, the Lord lifted me up and strengthened me. I'm doing much better now. I'm at a healthy weight again, super recovered. I think if everyone can see. And I just think about how true of a statement that is that the Lord will never get wary of your everyday crosses and trials. And that's my testimony on that. As you can see, we can extract so much from Isaiah, just one verse. And we're, we're demonstrating that now that we can apply Isaiah to our life, regardless of our situation, regardless of who we are. I think that is another reason why Isaiah was often quoted in the Book of Mormon, why the Lord commands us to read Isaiah is because there is so much to extract and so many ways to interpret 
Isaiah and his words. So we want to get into 2 Nephi 8 now, which is similar to Isaiah 51 and then a few verses into Isaiah 52. One of the verses that stood out to me this week as I was reading was 2 Nephi 8, 7. And it says, Hearken unto me, ye that know righteousness, the people in whose heart I have written my law. Fear ye not the reproach of men, neither be ye afraid of their revelings. As I read this, I've read this verse so many times, but as I read it this week, I was struck by the word reproach and revelings and started thinking about how, again, we live in this world of so much debate and contention, tribulation, and social media has really become a platform for this propagation of contention and debate and arguing. And 20, 30 years ago, there wasn't a platform such as this for so much contention. And I wanted to read a little bit, and this is a really sad thing, but I wanted to read a little bit about the effects of too much social media and negative social media has on our mental health and, and our happiness. And it comes from an article from childmind.org, from the Childmind Institute. It says a 2017 study of over half a million 8th through 12th graders found that the number exhibiting high levels of depressive symptoms increased by 33% between 2010 and 2015. In the same period, the suicide rate for girls in that age group increased by 65%. So what's the common denominator here? Social media and more access to the internet. And the sad thing about this is that the globalization of arguments and the more access to this contention is leading people to depression, anxiety, and unfortunately suicide. It, it, it really does apply to this verse that we should not refer, we should not fear the reproach of men nor their revelings. And again, I'm reminded of Lehi and his family that they heeded not the scornful finger of those that were in the great and spacious building. And it's becoming ever more important that we heed not those that not only reject us and criticize us and talk about things against the church or against the Book of Mormon or against our doctrine, against temples, but also in our personal life that we're attacked for who we are, for our race, for our gender, for our religion. We're attacked so many ways through social media and social media can be a really great thing. We can share the gospel through it. We can connect with people and there's more ways to serve people with social media. We're connected on a much faster and much more global level. However, again, the stat that I read is extremely alarming and we need to pay attention to that. We need to pay attention to how our social media use is affecting us on a day-to-day -day level. Do we really take into consideration what other people say about us? Do we take into consideration how what they say to us can affect us and change our mentality and change who we are as people? Do we take into consideration what God thinks about us, what God would have us do? Do we spend too much time thinking about what other people think about us, what other people think about we, what we wear, what we do for a living, what we enjoy, our hobbies? Or do we worry about how God perceives us, how God would react to our actions, what God thinks about what we're doing on a day-to-day -day level? I think that's why 2 Nephi 8 talks about the atonement of Jesus Christ in verse 22. I wanted to read that because I think it's so important, especially because in Isaiah, he was an Old Testament prophet and prophesied of the Savior. Thus saith thy Lord, and the Lord and thy God pleadeth the cause of his people, because I have taken out of thine hand the cup of trembling, 
the dregs of the cup of my fury. Thou shalt no more drink it again. And I think about that. Jesus Christ is the savior of the world, the most important person who's ever lived and will live. And if there's anybody that we should care about what they think about us and our actions, it's the savior of the world. And the thing is, is that he's never judgmental. He's never overly critical. He cares about us. He loves us. He's sympathetic. Actually, he's not sympathetic. He's empathetic because he's been there. He's done that. Any feeling that we have, he's already felt before. And I think we need to internalize that better and realize that we're never alone in our feelings and we're never alone in our struggles. Now, I appreciate so much how Celia shared her experience. I think it's important that we recognize that no matter what situation we find ourselves in, even though we might think that there's no way possible that anyone else could have experienced that, Jesus Christ has experienced that. So we want to transition now into 2 Nephi 9. And I wanted to quickly share an experience I've had with 2 Nephi 9. I was in the MTC in Guatemala. It was an awesome time. I loved the MTC in Guatemala. It was so small and only had about 100 missionaries. And it felt like we were just this small community and we all knew each other and it was a great time. And I remember one day I was sitting in one of our lessons and we were talking about how to be a missionary and how to preach the gospel. And we were given a chance to read from the Book of Mormon. And we were given about 30 minutes to just study on our own. And I had been reading cover to cover the Book of Mormon. And I really was struck by 2 Nephi 9. I remember the day clearly. It was a super sunny day and the sun was shining in from the window. And I was sort of missing home that day. It had been about three weeks that I'd been in the MTC, about halfway through my time there. And and 2 Nephi 9 really spoke to me that day and reminded me of my Savior and the atonement of Jesus Christ and what it can do for us. Something that I've loved learning about is not only is it an atonement for our sins, but it's an atonement for our souls and the things that we think we aren't good at and things that we wish we were better at and our shortcomings in anything in life, whether it's tests or quizzes or a promotion at work or a relationship, it heals the fractures and the broken relationships in our life. And it heals everything that we go through and not just our sins, although that is an important part of it, of course. And I just always go back to that experience I had in the MTC reading 2nd Nephi 9. And I think it was the first time I'd read the Book of Mormon before, but I think it was the first time that I really tried to understand what the atonement means for me. And and I really appreciate 2nd Nephi 9 and how it can help us to deepen our, our love for the Savior and for His atonement. So we're going to go through some verses in 2nd Nephi 9. Thank you, Carter, for that beautiful sermon. <laughs> Is that what I'm allowed to call it? A mini sermon on the atonement. I think it's always a good reminder and to take time on our Sabbath day to think about the atonement, especially during sacrament. But like Carter said, we're going to dive into some verses in chapter nine, and I'm going to take the mic for a little bit. And there's a few things that stuck out to me as I was reading chapter nine this week. This is probably the chapter that has like the most information in it. Like it's kind of the highlight of these chapters for this week. But I kind of wanted to take a second to preface before I get into these verses. It's going to be chapter nine, verses 21 through 24. So as a missionary, there's in the old PMG, which is Preach My Gospel, they just updated it. But there was a couple of different lessons. There was the restoration lesson, there was plan of salvation, the uh, gospel of Jesus Christ, and then covenants and ordinances, and then commandments. 
one of the lesson the subsections in that third lesson the gospel of jesus christ there's a point there's two different points there's the mission and gospel of jesus christ two different points a mission and his gospel which i thought was interesting in pmg that they would make that distinction that jesus christ not only had a mission but he also has his gospel and i think these four verses do really well at kind of summarizing it so verses 21 through 24 are going to be the mission of jesus christ and i'll read those for you right now it says and he cometh into the world that he may save all men if they will hearken unto his voice for behold he suffereth the pains of all men yea, the pains of every living creature both men women and children who belong to the family of adam and he suffereth this that the resurrection might pass upon all men that all might stand before him at the great judgment day. And he command, commandeth all men that they must repent and be baptized in his name, having perfect faith in the Holy One of Israel. They cannot be saved in the kingdom of God. 23 kind of leaked into the gospel, but 21 and 22 really focus on his mission. And his mission was to be our savior, to be our Messiah, to be our redeemer. His mission coming to earth was to provide a way for us to live with him again to live with our Father in Heaven again, right? Father in Heaven knew very well that when we came to Earth, we would not be perfect. We would make mistakes, right? There's n That's part of the fall. There's no way around that. We needed something that could wash away our sins and our transgressions and our mistakes. And that's what the Atonement was. And that was Christ's mission, was to prepare the way for us that we can return to our Father in Heaven again. And so that's His mission, but the Gospel are the steps and how we can walk that covenant path and return to him again and that's what 23 kind of starts to bounce off bounce off of he says that they must repent and be baptized in his name having perfect faith in the holy one of israel or they cannot be saved in the kingdom of god and if they will not repent and believe in his name and be baptized in his name and endure to the end then they must be damned for the lord's god the holy one of israel has spoken it and that's the five points of the gospel of jesus christ that we teach when we are missionaries and we go out and preach the lord's gospel it's faith, repentance, baptism, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, and enduring to the end. And that's what I love about these verses right here, is it says all five of those things pretty explicitly. And it's beautiful to know that from the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ was set in stone, right? We knew what we had to do. It's been very clearly taught to us by prophets of old and even prophets now. And I think it's just an important, I just think it's cool to be able to take a step back and differentiate between the mission of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think it just speaks to his perfect love for us and really kind of puts an emphasis and a whole new meaning into what he did. I'm curious, Carter, what are your thoughts on the mission and the gospel of Jesus Christ? So thinking about the mission and gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm often thinking back upon my own conversion to the gospel and, and Christ's role in my life. And want to share a brief experience again on my mission. I feel like all my stories are from my mission, but one time it was in my training and I was struggling to adapt to a new culture, to understand a new language and to feel like I was making a difference in people's lives. And I remember one day my companion was sick. We had been knocking doors. Actually in Honduras, you just yell at people in the morning to try to get them to come out of their house. But we were trying to proselyte and my companion started feeling sick and it started pouring rain. And so we came back home and he plopped into his bed and just passed out for a few hours. And so I took the advantage of some extra time to study some Spanish and felt that I was really not making any progress in it and felt that 
I wasn't going to ever be able to communicate effectively with the people of Honduras to preach the gospel to them and try to help them to understand who Christ was. And then I started thinking, do I understand who Christ is? Do I understand who the Savior is? Do I accept his role in my life and do I utilize it in my life? And I was overcome with a feeling of peace and a feeling of joy and a feeling that I would be able to not only effectively speak the Spanish language, but that I also was loved by the Savior. And, and I almost could feel his presence in the room. And and my, my comp was in the other room, just totally passed out. And so I felt oddly alone at that point. And then I had this experience where I felt like the Savior was right next to me. And it, re- it set the tone for the rest of my mission. It set the tone that I was loved by Jesus Christ and that it was his mission to love me. And it was his mission to love all of God's children and to provide a way for them to return to live with him one day and receive a fullness of joy. And since that point, I've always looked back on that experience as when I feel like I fully not, I don't think we'll ever fully understand Christ's love for us, but it was a time when I experienced Christ's love for me and understood his role as my savior. Thanks, Carter. I think it is super important to know our Savior personally, right, and have that testimony and witness. So moving on from those verses, my last little ramble, (laughs) I guess, is going to be still in this chapter, but it goes into verse 41. And I'm going to read it, and then I'll talk about what I want to focus on from this verse. But it says, Oh, then, my beloved brethren, come unto the Lord, the Holy One. Remember that his paths are righteous. Behold, the way for man is narrow, but it lieth in a straight course before him. And the keeper of the gate is the Holy One of Israel, and he employeth no servant there. And there is none other way, save it be by the gate, for he cannot be deceived, for the Lord God is his name. And something that really struck me in these verses was the end, where it says, for he cannot be deceived. I've never really thought about that or heard about that in the scriptures, thinking about when I come to the Lord or when I come to the Lord on judgment day, I there's no way for me to hide anything I've done, right? He really cannot be deceived. I can't be like, oh yeah, like, no, I totally did this. You just didn't catch it. Sorry, you were busy focusing on somebody else. And there was this quote from Neil A. Maxwell that I think really helps kind of sum up what this verse means when it says the Lord God cannot be deceived. So Neil A. Maxwell says, the emphasis is on the fact that Jesus cannot be deceived. There is another dimension of reassurance too. Not only will ultimate judgment not be delegated in order to to serve the purposes of divine justice, but also divine mercy can best be applied by him who knows these things. What only he can know, the quiet moments of courage in the lives of his flock, the unnoticed acts of Christian service, the unspoken thoughts, which can be credited in no other way except through perfect judgment. And I really love that quote, and I think that's the whole point of he cannot be deceived. It's not only, you know, it's not meant to scare us. I think that's what Neely Maxwell is trying to get across. It's not to scare us. I'm like, oh my gosh, he can see my every little move. And if I even step on a fly, it's a game over. That is absolutely not the point. The point is that he sees everything. He sees those quiet moments of courage. He sees the prayers of our hearts. He sees when you open the door for the mom trying to get out of the grocery store with her kids. He sees every moment. And so when we get up to that judgment day, it's not so much of I'm scared, I'm not going to make it because of the little things. It's I know I'm going to make it because Jesus Christ is my advocate and his divine mercy will cover all of my quiet moments. I know that I spent my life doing. It goes back to the not being ashamed to wait on the Lord, right? 
those everyday Latter-day Saints who are so faithful in the things that they do know that the Lord's divine mercy will get them into the celestial kingdom where they can be with their heavenly father for the rest of eternity. And that's the beauty of this message in this verse. Thanks, Celia, for sharing your thoughts about some of the verses in 2 Nephi 9. And I really think that we could spend so much time on 2 Nephi 9. And as I've mentioned, 2 Nephi 9 was one of the first chapters in the Book of Mormon that really helped me to feel connected to the Savior and to understand his role. And I think that 2 Nephi 6 through 10, which are obviously the scriptures that we're covering this week in Come Follow Me, are designed to display and demonstrate Christ's role. And as Celia was talking about, the gospel of Jesus Christ and why we needed a savior. So out of the interest of time, we want to finish up today with 2 Nephi 10, which again is such a beautiful chapter about the savior. And again, this is Christ-centered conversations. We always want to center our thoughts and our words around Jesus Christ. And I think that this chapter provides us with an amazing opportunity to, again, further our understanding of what his role in our life is. And I wanted to focus on 2 Nephi 10.3. And Jacob talks about how he was told in, by an angel that Christ would be the name of the Savior. I wanted to kind of dig deep on this. And, and this is something that a lot of us have probably heard of before, but I, I wanted to provide another space to talk about it. And as we talked about, kind of relating back to how God composes the universe, just like a, a composer of an orchestra, he deliberately planned for Jesus to be considered the Christ. And now I wanted to, again, kind of dig deeper about this topic and, and look at what the word Christ really means. So Christ is also Christus, is the Greek word for Messiah or Mashiach, which in Hebrew means anointed one. And again, a lot of people know this, but I wanted to kind of talk about the history of, of the Messiah and what the Jews and, and ancient Israelites expected out of a, of a Messiah and what their view of the Messiah was. So Messiah was used a lot of times to refer to people who were set apart for a specific role. For example, King David was anointed to be the king of Israel. And so he was technically a Messiah. He was an anointed one. But the key here is that he was an anointed one, not the anointed one. There is a discrepancy between an and the in this case. And Christ was the Messiah. As the Jews and the Israelites experienced incredible hardships and an unthought of captivity and pain, they looked forward to the prophecy of the Messiah. And again, many of us understand that they looked towards more of a military worldly leader, someone like King David, who would free them from their bondage and their captivity. And and that's why so many missed the mark. They looked beyond the mark and looked past who Jesus Christ really was, how Jesus Christ fulfilled every single prophecy from the Old Testament. And yet, because they were expecting something totally different, they rejected him as the Savior and ultimately killed him. And Jacob teaches about why Jesus Christ came to the Jews, because they were the only people that would have killed their Savior. And so again, the, the Jews were looking for more of a military leader as opposed to a spiritual leader. And what's interesting as well is that Jesus in, in Hebrew was Yeshua, or also the, the equivalent of Joshua, which means God saves, or in other words, a Savior. So Jesus Christ literally means 
the anointed savior. And that's the distinction between a Messiah and the Messiah. And what I think is beautiful is Jesus Christ's true name points us towards his mission and points us towards who he is. I wanted to just wrap up this podcast today talking a little bit about Jesus Christ again, as we have most of this podcast and, and talk about 2 Nephi 10, 23, and 24. Talks about reconciling ourselves to God, tying ourselves to God through covenants, tying ourselves to God through Jesus Christ. And I wanted to read what the definition of reconciliation is in the 1828 Webster's Dictionary. It says, to conciliate anew, to call back into union and friendship the affections which have been alienated, to restore to friendship or favor after estrangement, as to reconcile men or parties that have been at variance. Something that I've learned throughout the course of my young life so far is, is we are the people that estrange ourselves from God. God never estranges himself from us. We are those who make the decision to separate us from God. And God is always there standing ready with open arms to receive us. And the way to get back to him, to the way to reconcile ourselves to God is through Jesus Christ and in his gospel and obeying the precepts and the ordinances and the covenants that we've made. And I wanted to ask Celia, what are her thoughts about this reconciliation to God and getting closer to him through our Savior, Jesus Christ? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think this is the best way to end this podcast this week is talking about coming back to God and knowing that the only way we can do that is through Jesus Christ. And I do want to leave my testimony that Jesus Christ is the chosen Savior and Messiah of the world. I cannot imagine it being anybody else, honestly. Knowing who he is and his character and how full of love and perfect mercy he is, this was the only plan. There there was no plan B, right? There was no backup. It was always going to be Jesus Christ. And I know that through him and only him is how we can not only return back to God, but to be with our loved ones forever. And I just wanted to I just wanted to leave my testimony of that and let everyone know how true this gospel is and more importantly, how perfect this gospel is. The people in the church are not. But this gospel is so perfect, and we need every bit of it every day of our lives. I wanted to add my final testimony today on this podcast about the Savior, Jesus Christ, and like Celia was saying, how he should be such a focal point in our life, and we shouldn't look past the mark as those who rejected Jesus Christ when he came in his first visit to this earth, that we need to let Jesus Christ become a part of every single aspect of our life. That as we do so, that we'll be able to connect further with God and to find that joy that we talked about as we become more like Christ. I think it's so beautiful that most of the attributes of Christ are things that if we do, we become happier. And there's, again, as we discussed earlier today, there's scientific evidence to back that thought. And I invite each one of us to make Christ more of a focal point in our life, to learn of him, to walk with him and to become more like him. We want to invite each and every one of you again to find resources to help you learn from Isaiah, because again, he he's such a great teacher about Jesus Christ, and we can learn so much about Jesus from Isaiah. And again, there's a purpose to everything. There's a purpose to Isaiah being in the Book of Mormon so often. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast today, and we're excited to talk about Second Nephi 11 through 19 next week. So from us, this is Carter. 
And this is Celia. And this is Christ-Centered Conversations. Conversations.